How is your grace doing? Well, week four into our grace series, how is it going? Is your grace tank nice and full? Always, Bernard. We're in awe of Bernard. How is your grace giving going? All good then, by the sounds of that. I've, uh, I've come to this amazing conclusion, which wasn't particularly amazing, that adults have no trouble, do they, receiving grace? You give a child a present, they take it. There is no hesitation, is there? You offer a present to a child, no questions, no concerns, they just take it and open it. But adults, we're a little bit more suspicious, aren't we? Uh, I had a, a little thing that happened recently when um, I was at the, the gym at the village and... Um, uh, a lady had come for the first time ever and didn't have a pound for the locker. You get your pound back, so it's okay. But she didn't have a pound, so I just automatically said, here, have a pound for your locker. Well, then ensued a 20-minute conversation about this pound. She just wouldn't take it off me and, and went into this whole thing of, well, how do I get it back to you? I'm like, I don't care. Have it. It's a pound. It was just before Christmas. So I said, have it as an early Christmas present. And uh, she just couldn't get over me just giving her a simple thing, like a pound. She was like, well, I'll leave it at reception for you. So when you come back next time, you know, this, there was this whole ordeal of how she was going to get this pound. You kind of wished I hadn't bothered, you know. I'm like, <laughs> that's 20 minutes of me swim gone. So, uh, but it's really difficult, isn't it, for adults, for us to, kids are okay with it. They love grace. But as adults, it takes a little bit longer to soak in. And I loved Leon's colour chart last week. I should have put it up on the screen again. But for those of you that were here will remember, those of you that weren't, we started with like a light shade of blue that got deeper and deeper and deeper until there was a nice deep shade of blue. And I think for us when it comes to the series and the reason why we've, we've run it for so many weeks is because it takes a while to sink in, doesn't it? And we maybe start at this end, but week after week as God continues to speak to us, suddenly we realise the, the message of grace is sinking in and our colour changes. Our colour of grace changes. We become more and more like Jesus. We become more and more like the colour of God's grace. And I've coined this little phrase. I'm proud of it, so I'm drawing attention to it. Um, it's on your notes. Grace needs to soak before it sticks. But I reckon once it sticks, it really shines. Grace takes a while, doesn't it, to soak in. And when we were talking about the series and, and uh, you know, how long to run it, you know, I was thinking about, I know the barrenness of my own heart when it comes to grace. And I know it needs a good soaking in grace before it's going to burst forth some new life and some fruitfulness. So grace needs to soak in me until it really sticks. And once it sticks, my life is going to be changed and transformed and I'm going to really shine in a grace-needy world I'm going to be a carrier of grace. So we're going to dip into the Old Testament this morning. One of the incredible things about scripture is, um, I think growing up, I used to think all the good stuff was in the New Testament and all the scary stuff was in the Old. And uh, what I've realized as we've gone through this series is actually God's grace starts at Genesis and goes all the way through every page of the Bible until Revelation. And uh, you look at Genesis and very quickly in Genesis, Genesis, the world goes wrong, doesn't it? Man makes a mistake and evil and destruction come into the world. And what's the very first reaction that God has to this rather catastrophic mistake that mankind has made? You'd think he might be angry or disappointed or revengeful or upset. But the very first thing God does in response to that mistake is to banish them from the Garden of Eden. Now that might sound like a harsh and cruel thing. You're like, well, we just slipped up once. 
and now are banished. But actually, it was an act of love and grace. Because in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there was also the tree of life. And had God allowed Adam and Eve to remain in the garden, there was the potential that had already brought evil into the world. They could have then eaten of the tree of life and it would have been here permanently with no chance of restoration or recovery. So the first thing that God does is to put them out of the garden to protect life. So it's a grace response in the very first pages of the New Testament. And we went through with Leon three weeks ago, didn't we, the story of Mephibosheth, just about said that, from the Old Testament. And then New Testament, a couple of weeks ago with Dan, we looked at Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. And then last week again, back into the, uh, still in the New Testament with the prodigal son. And right through, even to the very last words in Revelation, you will find the words of grace. God's grace is right through scripture. You kind of get the impression he's trying to tell us something, don't you? And we're going to jump back into the Old Testament today to look at a story of grace, again, to reinforce this message we think God is wanting to bring to us. So if you want to grab your Bibles, and uh, you might also want to grab your notes that have come with your bulletin, as I'll kind of just keep you on track with me this morning. We're going to go to the story of Ruth. It's quite early on in the Old Testament it's an absolutely fantastic book. It's only four chapters long. You can read it in 15 to 20 minutes. And it's great to read it as a whole story and, and to kind of get the imagery and the sights and sounds and, and build up the story. So I recommend that you do that while your roast potatoes are cooking. Chapters one to four of Ruth and you'll have done the whole book. Just to give you an update, we're actually going to jump in at chapter three. But just to bring you up to speed of where we're going to jump in to the story... Uh, The story begins with a family where the father, the head of the household, is a guy called Elimelech. Elimelech. And he is married to another Israelite called Naomi. So you've got Elimelech and Naomi living in Judah. Well, because of famine in the land, and they have two sons, Kilion and Marlon, because they have two sons, they then move, against kind of God's instructions, they then move to the land of Moab. And they settle there and they start to live there in the hope that they will fare better because obviously Israel is not doing them so well in their opinion. Well, they get to Moab and uh, the two guys get married. Kilion marries Orpah, Marlon marries Ruth and they settle there for a further period of time. And then the scriptures tell us that Elimelech, the father, dies. Ten years later, the two sons die. So they've obviously been in this nation for some time. So we're left with three widows One is an Israelite, two are Moabite women. So that's kind of chapter one uh, where we're up to. Then chapter two, Naomi finds out that there is in fact food back in Judah. And uh, she decides that actually she's got no reason to stay in Moabite. She's lost her family. The two daughters-in-law are Moabites, so she might as well move back in the hope that there may be provision in Judah. So Naomi goes to set off and she turns to her two daughters-in-law and says, you don't want to come with me. This is not your land. This is not your God. This is not your territory. This is not your culture. You are Moabite women. You should stay here. I will go back alone. Now Orpah thinks, that sounds good. I'll go with that. And she stays. Ruth, however, who becomes famous because of it probably, Ruth decides, 
because she's begun to realize that perhaps the God of Israel is the one and true living God. So Ruth decides on this really amazing piece of scripture in chapter 2 that she's going to go with Naomi back to Judah. And I laughed out loud, I LOL'd at this point when I read it, which doesn't happen a lot in scripture. But I loved in chapter 2 where it goes, uh, Orpah says she's going to go back home. And they get to the border of Judah and Moab and Orpah goes home. And uh, Ruth does this speech of, I will go where you go. I will follow you to your land. I will eat what you eat. I will be with you forever. I will die with you. Your God will be my God. I, even if I disobey on this, may the Lord strike me dead. And there's this amazing speech. And then the next line in scripture was the LOL line that says, when Naomi realized Naomi was determined to go with her, (laughs) the clue phone was ringing. Yes. I just love the way it's written sometimes after this, when Naomi realized, yeah, pick up the phone. So, so anyway, these two ladies, uh, Naomi and Ruth, make it back to Judah. And uh, um, uh, Ruth, the daughter-in-law of the Moabite, she has no rights in this land. She is a foreigner, an alien, a stranger. They're destitute. They are poor. They have nothing going for them. And uh, so Naomi, the mother, suggests to Ruth, the daughter-in-law, that she should go glean in the fields. And in those days, what would happen with the harvest was the guys would go uh, forward first and they would cut the sheaves. The women would follow immediately behind them, gathering the sheaves. And it was law at the time that if you were a poor person and you had no means of income or no way of getting food, you were allowed legally to go in the fields and glean. And you would basically pick up the scraps in the field to feed yourself. And the farmers had to make sure there was stuff left for the poor people. So this is kind of where we're picking the story up. You've got these two women, they're back in Judah. And... uh, Ruth has begun to work in the fields. And we're going to join at chapter 3 and verse 1. I've got an NLT version. If you've got an NIV, it might read slightly differently. So, chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain where his, uh, with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor. But don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth quietly came quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over and he was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Don't know whether that's ever happened to you, whether that's quite normal in your household or that would be a surprise for you too. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my kinsman, Redeemer. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning together, the role of the kinsman Redeemer 
in the Old Testament, but also what that means for us today. Provision was made in the law of Moses. So if you want to get into this even a bit more than after you read your four chapters of Ruth, you can jump into Leviticus 25, makes great Sunday afternoon reading. Leviticus 25 um, uh, is representing some of the laws of Moses. And this particular one made provision for people that were in need to be saved, restored, recovered. And it was called the kinsman redeemer law. And the word kinsman redeemer in the original is the word goel. You've got it on your notes. If you've got a better pronunciation of that, I'd love to hear it. A kinsman redeemer is a goel, which means to redeem or buy back. And the kinsman redeemer could free the person by paying the ransom price. So I'm just going to quickly go through what the rights were, so that if you were in need and were able to be saved, these were some of the rights that uh, you would have in the law of Moses. It was a bit like, a, you know, when you play Monopoly, your best card is you get out of jail free, isn't it? Isn't it great when you've got one of those up your sleeve? So no matter what happens to you, you've got your get-out-of-jail card free. And the Kinsman Redeemer right was a bit of a card that you could play to get yourself out of serious trouble. So the law covered, if a person was forced to sell their land, the Kinsman Redeemer could buy the land back. If the person had to, because he was so uh, poor, had to sell himself into slavery, the Redeemer could purchase his freedom. If the person was in serious debt, the redeemer could settle the account. And if a husband died, which was the situation in Ruth's story, without an heir, the kingsman redeemer could marry the wife to maintain the family name. And it also involved a transfer of inheritance from the kingsman redeemer to the person being redeemed. So it was a powerful, powerful thing. If you land was lost, you could get it back. If you were in prison or a slavery, you could be set free. If you were in debt, your, your debts could be cancelled. And if you were uh, widowed and without an heir, which was, was huge stigma in those days, then you know, there was provision for you to be married and also then to have children. And you would also gain some of the inheritance of the person redeeming you. So it's quite a cool thing. Quite a cool thing that God had put in place in the Old Testament to rescue and redeem people. And again, you see, again, the heart of God, don't you? For people who get themselves in a mess, choice or circumstances, God puts in place a a plan of redemption and recovery. So there were four requirements. And I'm going to go through these initially quickly and then a little bit slower. So the initial requirements for somebody to act as a kinsman redeemer. I don't know whether we can get the fans on. I'm noticing a few people starting to look slightly... I've seen a lot of this. So uh, thanks, Mac. That would be great. So the four requirements were, first of all, the redeemer had to be a blood relative. Had to be a blood relative. And we know that from Ruth. Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now there was a man in Bethlehem named Boaz who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Ruth 3 verse 2, Boaz, Naomi talks to Ruth and says, Boaz is our close relative. And Boaz himself says in chapter 3, it is true that I am your kinsman redeemer. There's no doubt in the story that Boaz was a blood relative to Naomi and Ruth and therefore could fulfill that part of the deal. Secondly, he must be able to redeem. 
And that wasn't in terms of having the money or the resource to do that. It was to do the fact that he needed to be free from the need of redemption himself in order to free somebody else. So if he himself was in debt, he obviously could not redeem someone else's debt. If he was in prison, he could not set someone else free. If he didn't have the means, uh, if his land was owing someone else, he could not buy somebody else's land. So he needed to be able, in the sense of being free, from the need of redemption himself in order to redeem somebody else. It says in Ruth chapter 2 verse 1, now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. And commentary suggests that Boaz was probably one of the most uh, rich, powerful, influential, significant men in the land at the time. So clearly he was not in need of any form of redemption. He was then free to redeem Ruth. Tick number two. Number three, he must be willing to redeem every part of what was required. This is where it gets a little interesting in the story because somebody is is a wuss in the story. And uh, so the kinsman redeemer needed to be able to redeem everything that needed redeeming, not bits of it, not the bits he liked and leave the bits he didn't. He had to redeem it all. And we see in the story of Ruth that Boaz says to her on the threshing floor that night, Yes, I am one of your kinsmen redeemers, but there is somebody else who's actually first in line before me. It's only right that we go to him first and ask him to pick up his rights, to pick up his duty to redeem you. So they go to the kinsman redeemer, who's number one in the line. He's not named, sadly. And uh, we don't know his name. There's probably some significance in that. But he goes to him and he says, will you pick up your rights? And he goes, absolutely tootly. There's all this land that I'm going to now inherit. That's great. Sign me up. But then Boaz says to him, but not only do you get the land, there's also the widow, Ruth. He goes, whoa, that wasn't part of the idea. Land, lovely, extend, you know, extend, extend my patch, grow more crops, become more wealthy. That's a great deal. I'll take that on. Oh, but I don't want the woman in part of the bargain. So he actually does something which we'll look at later. It's quite significant because in those days to sign a deal, a sandal was used. Isn't this a beautiful specimen? You wouldn't believe the trouble I've had this week trying to find a sandal. You've all got these clever Nike Velcro-y things now, haven't you, you boys? So this is uh, the best I could get of a Jesus sandal, a sandal that would look like something from the Old Testament, okay? British home stores, near enough. So, the idea was that if you were going to sign on the deal, you would take your sandal off and you would pass it to the person who you were paying off, whether it was the, you know, the person that you owed the money to or the person who owned the land or the person that you were imprisoned to. So not, not uh, Ruth or Naomi, but the kinsman redeemed would take the sandal off and they would pass it to the person. And that was, that was signed that the deal was done. There was no signing of paper. That act was the legal um, transaction completed. And we read in the story that the kinsman redeemer, who was number one, he doesn't want the whole deal. He doesn't want the whole part. So he takes his sandal off and leaves it. So he's not prepared to fill the requirements So then it goes to Boaz, who's quite happy with this. So Boaz takes his sandal off, he passes it over, and the deal is final. Fourthly, so the kinsman redeemer needs to be a blood relative, needs to be free from redemption himself, but unable to redeem, and he must be willing to take everything that needs redemption. And finally, he must be able to pay the price in full. 
And uh, we know that this was true from the text because of the legal transaction that's recorded there. And it says that the elders of the town were witnesses to this. So we know that Boaz had fulfilled all the requirements, had the means to pay in full because the transaction happened. And I just, in my mind, because I'm quite visual and pictorial in how I think, I could just imagine the marketplace and the elders there and the first kinsman redeemer and the second and then Boaz. And I could just see Ruth waiting as this person in desperate need of saving, in desperate need of redeeming, um, who's got nothing that she can do about the situation herself, just watching this happen. And can you imagine when she saw the sandal, the sandal of salvation get moved across from one part to the other, knowing that she was now had inheritance, she had a husband, she had land, she had a future, she had hope, she had a destiny. Can you imagine what that must have been like to actually witness that transaction as the sandal was passed across knowing you'd been saved, knowing you had been redeemed? And where I want us to go this morning is, what does that mean for us today? Because the story's in there for a reason. And uh, Ruth 4 verse 14 says this, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous. We are blessed today because God has not left us without a redeemer. And that person is the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to head back up to the top and I'm going to take you through those four requirements again, but from the perspective of us and the perspective of what, how Jesus Christ fulfills those criteria. So first of all, Jesus must be a blood relative to us, okay? And um, uh, if you jump into the beginning of John, John chapter 1 verse 14, it says this, so the word, and that's talking about Jesus, became human. Well, the Greek for that is flesh and blood. So that verse is saying, so Jesus became flesh and blood and made his home within us. And we sang, didn't we? Love came down and rescued me. God, the Almighty, the Son, his Spirit, Jesus Christ, came in the form of a human as part of the rescue plan. Hebrews 2 says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood for only a human could be, could die to break the power of our bondage and sin. So Jesus had to come as a human in order to break the power of sin on us. So he becomes a relative, he becomes a human being in the wider scheme of humankind. Jesus becomes a relative of ours. But I want to just kind of drill this home a little bit more with an illustration about how Jesus, I see Jesus being a blood relative, a specific blood blood relative. And I was thinking about this and how I could illustrate this. And I was thinking about my blood donor card. And uh, this is my blood donor card that started on the 12th of November, 1986, started giving blood. I'm not sure my motives were entirely pure. Um, I thought every time I gave a pint of blood, I might lose weight. (laughs) Sadly, sadly, you're only allowed to go every six months. And there was a lot of eating in those six months. So, so yeah, but obviously it helps people as well, doesn't it? It's not all about me. So uh, my blood donor card tells me that I am ORH positive. Anyone else ORH positive? Do you even know? No. 
And um, this is great, isn't it? This tells me my blood type is ORH positive, and therefore, if I'm in a, you know, an accident or something happens to me, and I need a life-saving blood transfusion, I know the medical profession will give me ORH positive blood because it matches me. My body won't reject it; it will give me life. So there's a match, isn't it? There's a there's a blood match there. Now, I want you to imagine, this is not medically correct, okay, so don't go home traumatized, but just imagine, for the purpose of the illustration, that this wasn't the case, that actually God had created us with a specific, unique, individual blood type. So in the same way that you have individual fingerprints, you have individual uh, DNA, you have uh, the retinas of your eyes, your voice box, there are loads of things that you, even if you're an identical twin, these bits are still different. You are absolutely unique individual and there's a number of things in your body that are completely unique to you. There's no one that's ever lived, no one that's living now, no one that will ever live will ever have the same bits and bobs as you. So let's imagine that in the same way God has given us those unique things, he gave us absolutely unique blood type. It's quite cool until you need some. Because then the reality is when you need a life-saving blood transfusion, nobody can help. And I think that Jesus has our exact blood match type. And when it comes to our spiritual life and it comes to our soul, yes, physically we do have blood type matches, but spiritually no one else can help you when you need a life-saving blood transfusion of the soul. The only person that has an identical match to your spiritual blood type is Jesus Christ. And he gave it willingly so that you might have life. Romans 8 verse 3 says, God did what nobody else could do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son in human form, to shed his blood as a sacrifice for our sins. Spiritually, Jesus Christ gives you a life-saving blood transfusion that is a perfect match for you. Secondly, so Jesus is our blood relative. Secondly, he must be able to redeem us. He must not be in need of redemption himself. Let me read you some scriptures that will reinforce this. 1 Peter 3, Christ never sinned, but he died for sinners. He suffered for our sins once and for all to bring you safely home to God. We are in need of saving from our sins, but Jesus, being perfect and spotless, does not need to be redeemed himself. 2 Corinthians 5, for God sent Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so we could be made right with God. 1 Peter 1, God paid a ransom for your life. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. 1 Peter 2, Jesus never sinned, so he was able to personally carry our sins in his body to the cross. Jesus is not in need of redemption himself. He is sinless, spotless, without fault, and therefore is in the position to be able to redeem us. And a a lady that some of you may have heard of uh, illustrated this in quite a graphic way, which may be a little disturbing for you, but I'm sure you'll be okay. A lady called Suzette Hatting. She has her own ministry voice in the city. They have an office on the bridge here. And about 20 years ago, I was living in Newcastle, and I remember seeing her on a video using this illustration, and I've never forgotten it. And she said, I want you to imagine, because the Bible says we are dead in our sins. 
You know, we are dead in our sins. We could do nothing to save ourselves from our sins. And she said, I want you to imagine that you go into a morgue. And you go into a morgue, and it's, it's a, a, a morgue of people who are spiritually dead. And you pull out one of those trays, and there's a dead body in there, and you push that one back in, and you get another tray, and you pull that one out there, and there's another dead body in there. Now, answer me this. How many of those dead bodies can help one of the others to give them life? On a scale of one to a hundred. <laughs> Not many. None. Squat. Zero. Diddly squat. If you are dead in your sins, how can you possibly bring someone else to life? You are in a spiritual morgue. You can do nothing about your own condition, and you can do nothing about anybody else's. But what does Ephesians 2 say? But God is so rich in grace and mercy, and he loves us so much, that even though we were dead in our sins, he gave us life through Jesus Christ. It is by grace you have been saved, not by anything that you could have done to resurrect your own life. And Suzette went on to say that, he says, she says, well, now imagine Jesus going into the morgue and he pulls out a drawer and it's you in the drawer. You are spiritually dead in your sins. And Jesus comes and he wraps his arms around you and he loves you and he breathes his life into you until suddenly you become alive in him. He is the only person that can save you because he is not in need of redemption in himself and nobody else, because all of us are in need of redemption, we can't help anybody else. Number three, he must be willing to redeem every part. Okay, well, this is where Kingsman Wussy, number one, copped out, didn't he, of the story earlier on, and Boaz stepped up to the plate. So is Jesus willing? Is Jesus willing, and is he prepared to take everything? Well, John 10 says this, Jesus said, no one can take my life from me, from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Matthew 20, 28, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Luke 19, again, Jesus speaking, I came to seek and save those who are lost. There's a clue, isn't there? Jesus came voluntary. He came to serve. He came to give. He came for you. It was the willingness. He wasn't forced. No one takes my life from me, he says. I give it voluntarily, gladly, wondrously. Yes, Jesus is willing. Secondly, can he deal with all of our stuff? Is it for every part? Is it the land, the widow, the debt, the sin, the disgrace, the guilt? Is it every part? Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave his life to free us from every kind of of sin. 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2, Jesus himself is the sacrifice that atones for all our sin, not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Are you in the world? I hope so. Not sure about some of you. (laughs) If you're in the world and the sin in your life, all of your sin and all of our sins and the whole world's sins have been taken care of by Jesus. Jesus was willing and he was prepared to take it all. Max Licardo says this brilliant line in one of his books. When Jesus went to the cross, he was saying he would rather die than live without you. The prospect of living without you was unbearable for Jesus. So he said, well, there's the cross. There's the people that need redeeming. I cannot bear living without them. So the cross is my voluntary choice. I'd rather die 
than live without you. But Brennan Manning, uh, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, says, God has one single stance towards us. He loves us. So if you're sat over here, okay, God's single stance towards you, no turning or changing, his single stance towards you is he loves you. Not the rest, no. And if you're in the middle, his single stance towards you this morning, right here, right now is he loves you. That isn't going to change. It's a single stance towards you. It's okay. You haven't been forgotten. God's single stance towards you is he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. It's unchanging. It's a single stance towards you. He loves you. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? And fourthly, he must be able to pay the price in full. And the price for our sin, as the Bible says, is death. It says we've all sinned and the payment for that is death. But Romans 6.24 says, but all are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by the shedding of Christ's blood. We are freely redeemed by his grace. And from the cross, what did Jesus say? It is finished. And it's like as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he could look back in time, he could look to the present day, he could look to all the time ahead, and he could see every sin that was ever going to be committed by anybody. And he paid for it all and said, it is done. It is finished. Complete. There's nothing that can't now be covered. It's all been covered by my blood. Charles Swindle in his book, Grace Awakening, says it like this. So many Christians live their lives as though they're going to be graded once a year by God who stands there frowning, with his hands stuck in his pockets, determining what's forgivable and what isn't. If only we could grasp and know and understand that all of God's wrath, in all of its entirety, was poured out on his son at his death on the cross. God was satisfied with his son. Ponder this. If the father is fully satisfied with his son's full payment for our sin, and we are in his son by grace through faith, then he is fully satisfied with you and with me. God is fully satisfied with you. How long must Christians live before we finally believe that and live as though it's really true? Is it beginning to sink in, this message of grace? We're going to head into a communion in just a moment. And uh, it reminded me when I heard the word satisfied, God being fully satisfied, it reminded me of the hymn that we sing in Christ alone. And I thought, I love that hymn. And how much do I just sing it off rote, you know, it's just words. And this part of it really came to me. And I think I'll sing it a little differently from here on in. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. So we're going to take communion now. The guys are going to come forward and uh, we're going to do it slightly differently, not overly different this morning. And um, we're going to take it all together. So the guys are going to come round and hand you your bread and wine. And um, so if you want to come, guys, now we're going to get this out nice and quick.
as we just kind of reflect, remember what God has done. Guys, if you want to come and get the stuff, start handing it out. So when you get your bread and when you get your wine, if you just hang on to it for a moment, we're going to take it all together because we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. The last thing I want to say is back to us being a church that wears sandals. You never thought you'd hear that in Zion, did you? That we want to be a church that wears Jesus sandals. Only with white socks, obviously. (laughs) Pulled up halfway up the calf. With rolled up trousers. And a knotted handkerchief on your head. But in this story, as I mentioned earlier, there was a kinsman redeemer who didn't do what he was asked to do by God. And he took his sandal off and left it. But we don't want to be like that, do we? We don't want to be a church of the unsandaled. And in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 23, it talks about those kinsmen redeemers who didn't do what was right. They were then called the family of the unsandaled because they took their sandal off. And it was a note of shame and uh, disappointment and reproach. So anyone that didn't fulfill the obligations that God had given them were known forever as the family of the unsandled. Well, I, for one, don't want to be a person of the unsandled. And as a church, we don't want to be a church of the unsandled. We don't want to go through the eons of history being recorded as Zion Christian Centre, the church of the unsandled, because we weren't prepared to extend grace to other people. We weren't prepared to fulfill our obligation in the nicest kind of sense, the mandate that God has put on us to be a church of the sandaled. We want to be that, don't we? Or is it just me? We want to be the church of the sandaled that picks up the grace that we've got and delivers it to a broken world. We want to be the sandal-wearing church. And the amazing thing, if we are, is look what happens in the story of Ruth because of what Boaz did. And this is often the story for people that don't know God. In chapter 1, Ruth does not even know that Boaz exists. Do you know people that don't think God exists? Chapter 1, Ruth doesn't even know the existence of Boaz. Chapter 2, she comes to Judah, she's working in the fields, and she meets Boaz as a powerful but distant man. How many people know that? Or someone you know. Chapter 3, Ruth begins to believe in the kindness and the promise of Boaz and eventually yields her life to him step by step. Who's got somebody that you'd love to see them yield their life step by step to God? Chapter 4, Ruth is no longer poor. The marriage, the romance has blossomed. The deal has been done. The redemption has happened. She has Boaz and she has everything. The most remarkable thing about that is if you flick to the New Testament, you look in Matthew 1, and Ruth becomes part of the royal line. Ruth, the foreigner, the destitute, the Moabite, excluded by the law, but included by God's grace, becomes the great-grandmother of David, and ancestor, and listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So when we pick up our responsibility, guess what happens? People become part of the line of Jesus. Wouldn't you want your colleagues, neighbours, friends, people that you know to become part of the ancestral line of Jesus because they've become a child of God? Isaiah 52 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Sandal-wearing, good news-bringing church. That's what we want to be. 
And I pray that God would pronounce over this house a blessing that the elders in Judah pronounced over Boaz. It's on your notes. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you. Wouldn't it be great if the elders in heaven, if the heavenly realms were pronouncing a blessing over this church that saying, because we wore our sandals, because we picked up our redemption rights, because we picked up our redemption requirements... We became like the house of that with an offspring that was people that came to know Christ. Wouldn't that be fantastic? We're going to conclude and sing My Redeemer Lives. Our Lord will reign forever. We're going to stand. We're going to celebrate of this redemption that we live in every day. We may not feel it every day, but we live in the truth of this redemption every day.